Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, May 2nd at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hey, guys. And back with us after a long absence, Aaron Mershon of Stat News. Thank you for coming. Uh, We'll also have our Bill of the Month interview later in the show. This month's patient got bitten by a poisonous snake, and while she's fine now, the bill was quite a whopper. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So let us start with the breaking news. The Department of Justice has filed its brief to the appeals court in that lawsuit aimed at striking down the Affordable Care Act in its entirety. The the brief is quite a read, Uh, DOJ argues, and this is different from the position they took when the lawsuit was filed last year, that eliminating the tax penalty for not having insurance means the entire ACA should fall. Who wants to remind us what this case is about? Because we've we've been at this for like a year, right? Yeah, I I can take that on. Um, Let's see. There's a simple way to kind of explain this. I mean, because there's so much. You really have to go back, of course, to the 2012 ruling by the Supreme Court in which uh, it held that the entire law is constitutional because we have this penalty, which they said was a tax. Congress has since removed that penalty for being uninsured. Therefore, these conservative-led states are saying because that penalty has been zeroed out, the entire law must fall. There's a lot you could talk about here, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which which, which we have done. I will link back to some of our longer discussions, but, you know, bottom line, the legal scholars on both sides of the ACA who thought this was kind of a dubious claim, but we got this judge in Texas who who they handpicked to say, yeah, the whole law should fall. And so now we are at the next level, yes? Right. So what's really interesting is if you look at the administration's initiative position on this, they argued that they thought only two parts of the law should fall, and that's the guaranteed issue and community rating, uh, with the argument, of course, being that if you're not requiring people to buy coverage, then insurers shouldn't be required to not charge people with pre-existing conditions more, etc. Um, but the administration has now gone further and is completely agreeing with the states that the rest of the law also can't stand. And that part is really interesting because it's a lot harder to kind of understand how they're able to argue that the entire Affordable Care Act, which of course consists of subsidies in the individual marketplaces and Medicaid expansion and taxes and all of these other things. And the Indian Health Service. There's so much, uh, you know, experiments with Medicare payment models, et cetera, why you could argue that those parts of the law necessarily have to fall if you don't have the individual mandate and the pre-existing condition protections. Um, But that is indeed the position that DOJ has taken, and they clarify that position in the brief that was filed yesterday um, and after sort of indicating initially at last month and or maybe it was March. I don't know. It's sort of a blur. But um, the next thing that's coming up is uh, likely oral arguments in July. And a lot of people have pointed out that in taking this drastic, I guess you could say, position against the Affordable Care Act, um, the administration is simultaneously is, is sort of 
relying on the ACA in a lot of ways, um, while also arguing that it shouldn't be law anymore. So, <laughs> uh, one one of my favorite. I mean, we've talked at length about what would happen if the ACA actually went away. All the things that wouldn't be there. But it turns out one of the things that wouldn't be there are a lot of anti fraud provisions. And we've already seen lawyers who are defending um, people accused of Medicare fraud and Medicaid fraud arguing that the, the their clients should now be um, the, the the charges should be dropped because the Justice Department can't prosecute a case based on a law that the Justice Department says is unconstitutional. So mm-hmm. the 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 ramifications of this, I think, are going further than anybody even imagined. And well, you know, there's so many things the administration's trying to do that would really be facilitated by things in the ACA. So, like, I've written about the anti-opioids effort. Well, like, you know, if half of people who are struggling with opioid abuse are in the Medicaid programs. You wipe out the ACA and Medicaid expansion, you're going to really undermine your efforts to try to take on that problem. Um, the HHS Secretary, Alex Azar, has also proposed some things through the Innovation Center, which also, the Medicare Medicaid Innovation Center, of course, which also was set up under the ACA. So there's a lot there. I think it's worth remembering the political debate about Obamacare, the objections to it, the efforts to, quote unquote, repeal and replace it. Those have really tended to focus actually on sort of one piece of the law, the piece of the law that expanded coverage to new people and the sort of accompanying taxes that were raised to pay for that coverage expansion. So when we saw politicians trying to repeal Obamacare in Congress, those were the parts of the law that they were really taking aim at. And so I think the Trump administration is trying to signal that they're against Obamacare in a kind of broad way, and they want to tell the court, throw the whole thing out. But what we're learning and being reminded of as we think about all of these many provisions that were in the Affordable Care Act is that actually there's a whole lot of stuff in there that's not about the coverage expansion. It's not about these tax increases that were used to fund it and that have become sort of intertwined with the functioning of our healthcare system, our criminal justice system, and other parts of our government. And if the court were to agree with this Texas judge and say that the whole law should be thrown out. It's very, very hard to imagine how all of that will come unraveled. And I think we will see consequences in far-reaching places, things like prosecutions for Medicare fraud, the possible approval, uh, the existing approval for biosimilar drugs, the authorization, as Julie said, of the Indian Health Service, which provides health care to a couple of million Americans. All of these things are, are going to be thrown into turmoil and will have to be revisited if the courts agree with the Justice Department in the end. All right. Well, I want to come back to the politics in a minute. But first, I want to talk about the continuing debate over Medicare for all, because I think the two are are intertwined. Um, The House Rules Committee held a hearing Tuesday. It was not, as many claim, the first one ever. I know that because I was at the last one 10 years ago. (laughs) But it was still pretty interesting. Um, What do we take away from this? Uh, Why and why was this hearing happening at the Rules Committee anyway? Margaret, you were there with me. Yeah, so I was there. And, you know, just just to sort of set the scene a little bit, the Rules Committee is a really important committee in Congress. Uh, They are very close to the leadership of the House because they sort of decide how bills go to the floor, what are the rules that will happen when they're debated, will there be amendments, what will they be, how much debate will there be, all of these kinds of things the Rules Committee gets to decide. Uh, But those are kind of technical things generally. They're important, but they're kind of procedural. The Rules Committee doesn't tend to do a lot of hearings on sort of policymaking, kind of primary policymaking in areas like healthcare. And they don't tend to uh, have a lot of activists or journalists who want to show up for their meetings. And so their meeting room itself is a beautiful room, but it's an extremely small room. And it's in a part of the Capitol that is not easily accessible by the public. 
Uh, and so, you know, we're in this room having this hearing on this really big topic, you know, that I think both parties care a lot about that would have very wide reaching consequences if it became law. And it's like all of us are just kind of crushed in like sardines. And mm-hmm. they tried to fit in as many people as they could. But uh, it was a very tight room. There really wasn't uh, the kind of breathing room for this big public discussion that you might imagine. Uh, but the reason why it was there is in part because I think there is dissension within the Democratic Party about Medicare for all. There are some members, you know, more than 100 members have co-sponsored a bill in the House that would create a Medicare for all system. So there's a good chunk of the membership that's really enthusiastic about this vision. They love the idea. They think it's politically advantageous for them. They think it's morally the right way for the country to move. And they want to discuss it. They want to sort of get in the weeds and hash out why it's important and also uh, how they should design it. And that is the kind of thing that congressional committee hearings often do. The chairman of the Rules Committee is one of those people. But the broader leadership, uh, Speaker Pelosi and others kind of higher up in the House, I think, are wary because other Democrats are less excited about this idea. This is not a majority position among Democrats. And in fact, many Democrats who won in the most recent midterm election, you know, who beat Republican incumbents are going to have to run again in 2020 and potentially close races in red states where the public may not be quite as enthusiastic about a big sweeping kind of left wing change to the healthcare system. And so I think the leadership is trying to find a way to keep both constituencies happy, to let the liberals have a public conversation, engage with this issue, make the case, try to bring more people onto their side, but not to have a process that results in a floor vote in this Congress on this bill because it will be a difficult vote for some of those other members. And because Republicans continue to hold both the Senate and the White House, and we know they do not support Medicare for all, it would sort of be futile anyway. So I think that's why you kind of see it in the Rules Committee. There was a chairman who really wanted to do it. I think the leadership wanted to give some places where this discussion could happen, but it's not in the usual place. It's not the most prominent place. It is not the biggest and most publicly accessible room in the Congress. Or the most comfortable. (laughs) I feel like the tone also was different maybe than it would have been if we had seen an energy and commerce or ways and means committee hearing because those – Which have huge cavernous hearing rooms and and (laughs) historically lots of public debate, you know, demonstrations and stuff and people could – the public can get into those rooms. Right. And those hearings, especially around healthcare, tend to get really fiery and emotional, especially if they involve the Affordable Care Act and – I thought there was a really different tone with rules. I mean, for one thing, part of it could have been the makeup of the committee. I think there's only four Republicans on the committee to like nine Democrats. I think and it's so, 11 to four. 11, <laughs> 11 and, to four. And, that's, and when, it, when Republicans control the House, it's the other way around. It's 11 Republicans and yeah. four Democrats. So, I mean, you had a few Republicans. Try, I mean, you know, so ranking member Cole is is you know pretty moderate and, and seemed to be someone who wanted to seriously discuss the issues. A few of the other Republicans, um, such as Mike Burgess, kind of got sidetracked a few times. Um, but I think for the most part, you saw pretty thoughtful questions for most of the Democrats and even some, you know, Cole, et cetera, on the committee. And there was a real discussion of some of the shortcomings of employer-sponsored plans right now and a real discussion of what would this mean for taxes? Um, what would this mean for overall national health care spending? So I think like the lawmakers, even, you know, those who are skeptical of Medicare for all emerged pretty happy with how it, the whole thing went. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I, I came out, uh, when I wrote my story, I said that the, the, the advocates were really happy because they got a hearing, and apparently they're now going to get a hearing in Ways and Means. I ran into the chairman yeah. on my way out of the Capitol. Um, and the Republicans were really happy because the Republicans feel like they can run on bashing 
Medicare for all as socialism. Um, the Democrats that Margot was talking about, who won in some of those red states, maybe not so happy. But now, and that's why I want to circle back to the to the Justice Department brief in the in the ACA case. That's the last thing the Republicans want is to have to go back and defend taking people's health care away. They'd much rather the Republicans would much rather talk about Medicare for all than about this ACA lawsuit, even though it's a Republican lawsuit. And I think some of the moderate Democrats would much rather talk about the ACA lawsuit than. <laughs> Talk about Medicare for all. So you've got these sort of huge political, you know, uh, and it's all I mean, it's all health care, but it's all sort of fighting with each other. Well, I thought that the other thing I would note about the rules hearing is the witnesses. It was what six or seven witnesses. And most of them um, were also very measured, I thought. I mean, there were a few that were definitely more on the side of like, we need to do Medicare for all right now. One of them was um, Addie Bar, Bar- if I'm pronouncing his name right, Barcom, um, whose, whose testimony was really, um, really. And he's he's uh, suffering from ALS and actually can, has, he was very prominent during the 2017 fight over repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. Um, he mm-hmm. was he was sort of ubiquitous. And now the, the disease has progressed that he can no longer speak. So he actually testified by um, computer generated speech. But uh, ranking member Cole at the end kind of went down the line and asked asked for each witness to recommend where they think we should go next. And most of them were pretty measured in their responses, saying maybe it would be more realistic to try to improve the Affordable Care Act and build on our existing system now versus like try to do an overall overhaul right away. Can I ask, Julie, I, I'm curious, since you spoke to Chairman Neal over on Ways and Means, what is the advantage for Neal and for the Democrats to having another hearing in what is usually a pretty serious venue? What do you think is the strategy? I, I was surprised. I mean, yeah. I, he actually, he said it, and I was, I kind of did a double take, and he said, we're going to have a hearing. I said, this Congress? He said, yeah, <laughs> this Congress. Um, I, you know, I my impression was, and this is what the Speaker had told everyone, it said that the committees, the health committees are working on other health legislation mm-hmm. that they think they might be able to pass on drug prices, on surprise medical bills, um, and on shoring up the Affordable Care Act, um, things that even if they can't get passed, some of them they could maybe get passed in the Senate. Some of them they could use that all Democrats would support could be messaging for the election. So I was a little bit surprised that he'd agreed to do this. You know, it may just be that that they have come to the conclusion that ha- there's nothing wrong with actually having the debate. I don't think that having a hearing means they're going to have a floor vote, but I think it might look sort of, this is the committee that normally handles major health legislation, and it's the main committee that this bill has been referred to. And my understanding is that they are not going to have a hearing on the bill. They're going to have a hearing on just single payer the as a general concept on like, yeah. what are the issues? What are the ways that, you know, it could be crafted? So I think it's it definitely actually feels like very big news that Ways and Means is doing anything in this area. I would not have predicted that that would happen. But I also think we have to we have to see this is not necessarily like the first step in the process of a bill going to the floor, which you might imagine because of Ways and Means' involvement. But instead, it's just we're just going to have more menus for talking about these policy issues in public in Congress. And that, that could really lay a groundwork, you know, after 2020, if there are big Democratic successes, that perhaps there might be more momentum to do something a little bit more ambitious. So we also got this long-awaited Congressional Budget Office study this week. Um, Tell us more about how the CBO would score a single-payer bill, because that's a big question. Um, And it was an interesting read, but it was sort of a little more of a primer than any hints to, to, you know, what CBO might say when when you hand them this bill and say, tell us how much it's going to cost and who's going to pay for it. And, you know, CBO is really good at laying out what it thinks will be some of the trade-offs. And here it was just more of the, these are the things that you should think about when you're doing this, right? So 
I saw two small places where they gave a hint about how they might score something. Uh, so one was at the very end. They were very explicit about the fact that they think that Medicare for all would involve government spending, right? That if the government is the insurer and is paying medical providers directly, that that is going to be an on-budget matter. And so that means that it will come with a big score. I don't think that was a big surprise, but it was an explicit statement about that. When uh, the Affordable Care Act was drafted, it was drafted very carefully to avoid that problem. They want they, Obviously, the Affordable Care Act pays out subsidies and, and uh, makes payments for the Medicaid expansion through the states. But a lot of the money that is being spent on premiums in the individual market is being paid by individuals. And they sort of designed it. There's an individual mandate that compels those people to buy those plans, but it's still considered by CBO to be their money. That lowered the price tag for Obamacare. Uh, In this case, definitely uh, the government is going to be on the hook for all of the dollars spent in this system. Uh, The other thing that I saw that I thought was kind of interesting is the CBO for a really long time has sort of been poo-pooing this idea that if Medicare negotiated for drugs, that it would get substantially lower prices than the Medicare Part D system has now. And they just like stuck in a paragraph in this paper where they said, even if Medicare was the only insurer in the country and it was doing a kind of more traditional price negotiation, we still don't really think there's quite as much savings in that as people expect. So the, the CBO has been so scoring the CBO has been scoring Medicare negotiation through like five different CBO directors saying it won't save money. I thought it was such an interesting paper, actually, because it really laid out the trade-offs about all kinds of decisions. But it also did this sort of subtle thing that I was not exactly expecting the CBO to do, which is to point out really explicitly that we have two bills in Congress that are single-payer bills. There's a Medicare for All Act from uh, Congresswoman Jayapal from Washington in the House, and then Senator Sanders of Vermont in the Senate has his Medicare for All Act. I think it's the same name. Um, but they're both, slight, the bills are slightly different. The bills different. are slightly different, but they both have basically the same vision for what single payer in the United States would look like. And what it would look like is everyone in the country would have the exact same health insurance. That health insurance would be paid for by the government. It would cover essentially any kind of medical benefit you could possibly think of. And you would never pay any co-payments or deductibles when you seek care. Uh, There's some subtle differences between them. We've talked about those. But just that's the vision, right? The vision is like everything is covered for everyone. You don't pay any dollars. The government pays for everything. And what the CBO report did kind of subtly is it just pointed out like there's a million other ways you could do this. Each of those decisions, there are a million different ways that you could make those decisions. There are different policy considerations. There are trade-offs for each. Well, they looked at like six other countries. And I thought that was one of the really – at the very beginning of the report, they list like several different categories of like what does the coverage look like? What are the you know what are the benefits what are the what is the cost sharing in Sweden Norway England Taiwan and they Australia out, and they Canada. pointed out correctly that um, most other countries don't have single payer yeah, systems. Yeah, they had this like little insert, this little this little like brown uh, insert in the middle of the report that was like, oh, also there are these multi payer systems in Europe. You might want to look at those too. I, I also was struck by um, so one of the things that Sanders has added on to his bill and that is in Jayapal's bill is his long term care, which wasn't or in the original version of Sanders' bill, um, and I think pretty much everybody agrees that would add substantially to the cost of legislation, and long-term care was not considered in the two analyses that we have of, of from the Mercatus Center and the Urban Institute of what Medicare for All would cost, and both had said around $32 trillion. So you could probably assume the cost would potentially be a lot more than that if you're adding on long-term care. And CBO just really made the point that, like, you know, right now, 
oftentimes it's family members that are providing the long-term care, and that's unpaid care. So now all of a sudden, if you put that, if you cover that, that turns into paid care. And so that's feeding into like overall healthcare spending. Yeah. All right. Well, this debate will continue indefinitely, I suspect. Um, very quickly, um, the House Appropriations uh, Subcommittee approved its version of a fiscal 2020 health and human services spending bill. This It is spring. That's when this, these things are supposed to happen. And I want to take just a moment to say what a difference it makes who controls the House, because that's where appropriations bills have to start. So while the Republicans have repeatedly set the discussion with a bill that cuts spending for HHS in general and programs like family planning in particular, Democrats are starting out exactly the opposite, as you would expect. Uh, in fact, and we'll get to this in a minute, the spending bill includes language that would specifically block the Trump administration's rules that would make it impossible for Planned Parenthood to continue to participate in federal family planning efforts. The bill would also provide $50 million in funding for gun safety research at the CDC and the NIH. I am old enough to remember when this first got cut in the 1990s. Uh, Margo, you've done a lot of work on this. How significant would it be to have actual funding for gun safety research? I think it could be very impactful. And particularly, these are really big numbers. Like, they almost seem like too big to me. You know, when the CDC last funded gun violence research, uh, they spent a little bit less than $3 million a year. So this is looking at $25 million for fiscal year 2020. That is a lot of money. It's 25 each, right, for CDC 25 and for NIH? Each. CDC, yeah. 25 million. NIH, 25 million. NIH, I think, has spent more over these last years. There have been fewer kind of explicit uh, restrictions on their funding, but there hasn't been specifically earmarked funding in this way either. So I think you see uh, the potential for a lot more research there. And I've done some reporting recently that uh, this is sort of coming on the heels of a lot of new investments by uh, philanthropic foundations, academic institutions, and state governments, and even some medical systems. So there's kind of this rising tide of gun research. There are a lot of new researchers who are leaving their doctoral programs and actually trying to make their careers in gun violence research, which wasn't true a generation ago. For a long time, it's sort of been like the same 12 guys doing this work. And I think they they have learned a lot. And many of them are extremely well-respected and, you know, wonderful researchers and have been wonderful sources for me. But, you know, most other uh, major public health programs have more people working on them. So, I think the potential for this government research is to kind of piggyback on some of this more uh, state and private funding to try to create enough funding that people can make a career trying to answer some crucial questions. So two more quick things about this, if it's okay. People uh, tend to think because gun control is so controversial that we actually know everything that we need to know and all we have to do is have political will to do things. Uh, I really think that's wrong. The RAND Corporation did a big survey of kind of the body of knowledge about gun research and laid out a series of questions about that we might like to know in order to make better policy and, and give better health care to people to prevent violence. And it turns out there's just tons of things about this that we don't know. And they're not just about like, does this law work or does that law work? They're also about like, what causes people to harm one another? What causes causes people uh, to choose guns, what types of guns are more dangerous than other guns, uh, you know, should what kinds of safety precautions can people take in their households. Uh, there just are many, many unanswered research questions that we could answer. And the other thing uh, that I just will note is what advocates say is that even though we have all this private funding now, there are certain questions that really require the government's involvement and particularly the CDC's involvement because it's not just about uh, giving a research grant to an academic researcher to go out and do their work. But there's also a lot of data collection that can really help us better understand what the current situation is, who's dying in what circumstances, from what weapons, in what places, with what policies. 
And the template for this is actually the National Highway Safety I've forgotten now the name of the entire National Highway Safety Administration. Administration. So, you know, we ha- used to have a lot of automobile deaths. And so the government created this center and they collect tons of data about road and driver and car conditions. And over the last few decades, the number of traffic fatalities has fallen dramatically. And it's been because they've been able to connect the dots on lots of little data points that you might not expect. Things like certain highway beautification campaigns that put trees in between highways, like those led to more accidents. So we could redesign our highways. And, you know, uh, they discovered this pattern a few years ago of higher center of gravity SUVs that were rolling over and having these fatal accidents with rollovers. They were able to recommend design changes to the cars. So that's sort of the model for a lot of these people is that if the CDC can make a big investment, if they can get more information about gun violence and crime, then the researchers who have their private research grants can go into that data set and start to find these patterns and make recommendations that could really have an effect. I'd say one more thing, and just that obviously this is we're early days in the appropriations process. Very this year. early, the very first step <laughs> of like twenty steps. And I think this will be particularly interesting to watch because of last year when Republicans were in charge, they did say at least sort of took a baby step on this issue and said explicitly that the CDC was not banned from conducting gun safety research. So I think it'll be interesting to see if this can get through a Republican-controlled Senate and see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, there was lots of reproductive health news. We'll we'll try to keep it somewhat short. Um, As we predicted last week, we now have not one but two nationwide injunctions on the Trump administration's Title X family planning regulations. Uh, Those are the regulations that would, among other things, require family planning providers that also perform abortions to maintain separate physical facilities. This case is clearly going to the Supreme Court, yes? where everybody's kind of nodding. I mean, this is there there will be more on this, but I, I think that this, this is this is an expected step so the so they won't take effect as uh, scheduled um in in May this month. Um but uh, but we will this fight will continue. One of the more interesting and unexpected twists in the continuing fight over abortion though happened in Kansas where the Supreme Court ruled that the state's constitution protects a woman's right to abortion. We've seen this in other states, Iowa and most notably last year, but Kansas Kansas has been one of the most fervently anti-abortion states in the country for a lot of years, which makes me wonder whether there's a new strategy here, perhaps, by uh, uh, abortion rights forces, um, knowing that they likely have a five to four uh, minority now, that the the anti-abortion forces have a five to four majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. Maybe they're going to try to sort of fight these things out in state Supreme Courts instead. Paige, you're you're looking mystified by this prospect. Oh, no, I actually I have to say I haven't followed that particular effort. But, you know, going back to the Title 10 cases, which I have written a bit about, that's just really, really interesting. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. Uh, The Supreme Court back in 1991 upheld very similar restrictions that had been passed by the Reagan administration, but which didn't actually go into effect. Um, But so I recently spoke, though, with um, the attorney general from Oregon, who's really involved in challenging these regulations. And they're relying pretty heavily on language within the Affordable Care Act in trying to make their case for why even though those regulations were upheld, these ones shouldn't be. And they pointed me specifically to some language um, saying in various parts of the ACA saying um, banning restrictions on on counseling, on counseling, yeah, right? Non-directive, or actually, I guess it removes a regulation. On no, the, the regulation was there to have that that women be given non-directive counseling on all of their options, including abortion. Right. And that was pr- the long-standing regulation. Yes, and the administration that seems to fly in the face of what the the Trump administration is trying to do now. So there's 
there's a couple of... But it was codified in the ACA. Right, exactly. So there's a couple of things in the ACA that I think they're really relying on to try to make their case. I think they're they're hopeful, but it'll be interesting to see how the court looks at it. I am still sort of... um, I mean, obviously, that case is going to end up at the Supreme Court. There is concern among abortion rights forces that maybe they don't really want to be going to the Supreme Court right now because they're not likely to win and that maybe they should make their – I mean, this happened – this particularly happened in Iowa where they specifically went to the Iowa Supreme Court rather than appeal to the the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Iowa Supreme Court, I believe it was – the first one was a parental notification um, law. The Iowa Supreme Court said, you know, yeah, this is – in the, this is this is protected by the Iowa Constitution, which made a lot of people roll their eyes. And I'm just I'm I'm sort of fascinated by the idea that that maybe this really will be a state by state thing even before the Supreme Court takes apart Roe v. Wade. I feel like one law they partic- abortion rights folks particularly would not want the Supreme Court to hear is the um, pain capable twenty week bans because I think that is seen as by anti-abortion folks as like one of the most likely to be upheld by the court because, you know, it's 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 doesn't ban abortions till halfway through pregnancy. The vast majority are before 20 weeks. Um, and I think um, when I've written about this before, it seems like the um, abortion right, rights folks have been pretty strategic about which states they've actually challenged these laws. And so I think 15, 20 states have passed. Yeah. And, and a lot of a them, lot. they haven't bothered to challenge them because, yeah. because they were afraid of losing. And that's even before the we have the, the latest editions. Yeah, of the I, right. I think it's just important to remember that there's a fair amount of strategy going on on both sides. State legislatures are deciding what to pass and when. They, they know that these cases are often going to end up in the courts and they want to have the right law for the right moment for the right judges. Uh, at the same time, I think the abortion rights groups have been somewhat measured, you know, for decades. Like, do we challenge this law or not challenge this law, depending on, uh, you know, where the court seems to be on these issues. Sometimes it's better to just let something lie that you think is in violation of the existing precedents if you're not sure what the court is going to do. And so it seems like this move to state Supreme Courts is just part of that long-term kind of strategic thinking. We're seeing Republican legislatures in a few states push further Uh, than they have in the past, because I think they think this new Supreme Court provides an opening for more ambitious questions to be reconsidered. And then we're seeing an adjustment on the other side as well as the um, abortion rights groups are deciding to maybe decline to challenge some of these laws or to challenge them in different venues. And there's real division if you talk to the anti-abortion folks, even among like between the more extreme groups versus the more like pragmatic groups in terms of what they think they should push, like especially the heartbeat laws. Yeah, the the six week bans. Yeah, which would essentially ban abortion when, you know, before most women even discover they're pregnant. And some of the groups like SBA list, they actually will tell you privately that they don't want those types of legislation to be advanced because it seems highly unlikely that in light of Roe v. Wade that the Supreme Court could ever uphold a ban that early in pregnant uh, ban on abortion that early in pregnancy. As, as someone who has covered this issue for 30 years, I can say this has always been sort of the, the, the debate. Both sides have sort of internal differences about how far they want to push and when, um, I think. But we're seeing it sort of in playing out in more venues than, than in the past. All right. That is all the time we have for the news. Now we will play our Bill of the Month interview I did on Wednesday. Then we will be back with our extra credits. And a reminder, if you have a medical bill you want to submit for our Bill of the Month series, we will put the link on the podcast page at khn.org. 
We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Carmen Heredia Rodriguez, who wrote our latest Bill of the Month. Hello, Carmen. Hey, Julie. So our patient this month had an unfortunate and expensive run-in with a snake. First, tell us who this month's patient is and what happened to her. So the patient this month, her name is Oakley Yoder. She was then a nine-year-old from Bloomington, Indiana, and she was hiking in Illinois as part of a summer camp last July when she suddenly felt a jab of pain in her right foot. And it turned out to be a snake bite from probably a copperhead. And the counselors quickly got her out of the forest to get help. And she ultimately took an air ambulance to Indiana, where the summer camp is headquartered for treatment. So she ended up getting four vials of antivenin at St. Vincent Evansville Hospital. And then she was transferred to Riley Hospital for Children for Observation. And ultimately, she left uh, the hospital less than 24 hours after the initial bite with her parents back to Bloomington, Indiana, where they're home. And she's okay, right? And she's okay. (laughs) Just in case you were worried. Yeah, she's perfectly okay. Uh, But the bill was pretty big. It was huge. It was nearly $143,000 for less than 24 hours of treatment. And now about $55,000 came from the air ambulance, which we've tackled before in a previous article in the bill of the month. But roughly $67,000 also came from the four vials of antivenin, and that drug is called Crofab. I guess first, before we get to why it's so expensive, the, the family was really lucky in this situation, right? They didn't, they weren't, you know, we've seen these bill of the month where the family's expected to pay six-figure bills and they can't. This family got off paying nothing, yes? Yeah, that's exactly what the dad said. So they ended up paying nothing miraculously. Because both parents were employed through the university, they got great benefits. And the summer camp also provided secondary insurance that picked up about $7,000 of the tab. So that $7,000 is the amount they probably would have spent in in deductibles and co-payments and whatnot. Exactly. Um, still, $7,000 for a snake bite sounds a lot better than $140,000 for a snake bite. For sure. But So obviously, the real story here is why that antivenin was so expensive. Why is that antivenin so expensive? It's not like it's a brand new technology. We've had treatments for snake bites for quite a long time. Exactly. We've had them for over a century. So the reporting showed two factors at play here. So one of them was the hospital markup. So the average price of Crofab is about $3,200 per vial. And while that is really expensive, Expensive, it's far cheaper than what St. Vincent Evansville Hospital charged. So they ended up charging about $17,000 per vial. And she got four of them. And she got four of them. And that is the minimum dosing. So who knows what would have happened if she had gotten bitten by a worse or more, more venomous snake or um, something horrible. Or I guess it had taken longer for her to get to the hospital. Exactly, because time is of the essence when you're bitten by a snake. Um, The price hike becomes more egregious when you also consider the fact that some of these facilities do purchase the drug at a discount, right? So obviously these hospital markups aren't really controlled by the manufacturers, so the manufacturers can sell their drugs, but ultimately it's up to the hospital to put the sticker price on it for these patients. And a second part of this is also the drug market forces in the United States. Now we know that everybody is talking about the fact that drugs are really, really expensive here, especially when compared to other countries. And at the time Oakley was bitten, there was only one drug available on a commercial basis to treat her. So the drug maker essentially had a monopoly and could charge what it wanted for this life-saving drug, which was $3,200. And today there is another snake uh, antivenin drug on the market that is cheaper per vial. That drug is called Anavip. But when you compare the minimum dosing for each of these drugs and take into account how much the number of vials varies by patient, the treatment could ultimately come out to roughly the same price. 
Because as I think we've discussed before, you need you need more than two to have good price competition. Exactly. And you also need a pay to play in the United States, right? And roughly only about 8,000 people actually get bitten by venomous snakes here. So a drug maker would be hard pressed to try and pay uh, to get FDA approval for a drug that they won't have exclusivity on and ultimately uh, will have to compete for, for a very low number of patients. And also there's a great graphic in the story, and we will post the link to the story, about... D- literally the travels that this drug goes through to get made. It, it it traverses the world in order to make it, right? Yes, across three continents. So it starts off here where the snakes are milked for their venom, and different snakes are used in order to make sure that the antivenin works against the range of the effects that could happen to a patient. And then it's sent to the UK for quality control. Then it's sent to Australia where the venom actually goes into different flocks of sheep in order for them to build up the immunity so then scientists can take out the serum that holds the antibodies needed to make the drug. Then it goes back to the UK where the drug is made through a really complicated filtering and and purification process. And then ultimately it comes back to the US where it is freeze dried and packaged for for patients. So it it is a well-traveled drug. It is a well-traveled drug. So what is the take home here? I mean, other than Try not to get bitten by a venomous snake. I mean, is there anything you can can do about a snake bite to keep the cost down? I guess also have good insurance. Absolutely. And find a summer camp that has secondary insurance. But other than that, uh, the snake expert said, essentially, you can always negotiate a hospital bill, but you can't negotiate a potentially life-threatening venomous bite from a snake. So get treatment first, get there as soon as possible, and then really think about the bill later because a, a life could very well be at stake. Carmen Heredia Rodriguez, thank you very much. Thank you, Julie. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Paige, uh, why don't you start this week? You have a very relevant story to our discussion. Yeah, I do. Well, this was a great story by my colleague Amy Goldstein entitled Why Vermont's Single-Payer Effort Failed and What Democrats Can Learn From It. And Amy really kind of took us back in time a little bit to when Vermont tried to Pass a, did pass a single-payer system. And then the governor finally threw up his hands a couple of years later saying, "There's we just can't figure out a way, a tenable way to really fund this. And they had run this um, plan through several models and looked at different payroll and income tax rates and just could not figure out a way to offer the comprehensive set of benefits they wanted to offer while still keeping tax increases in the single digits. And um, and so she, and Amy notes that, or, or makes the argument that it's it seems like a lot of the Democrats that are pushing now for a national Medicare for all plan maybe should take a closer look at what happened in Vermont, maybe try to like learn from some of those lessons. Yeah. Margo. Um, I wanted to do a little log rolling for uh, my own work this week. Um, I did a story called They Want It to Be Secret, How a Common Blood Test Can Cost $11 or Almost $1,000. And uh, so two things about this piece that were really interesting to me and the reason I want to talk about it. Um, one is because of this organization called the Healthcare Cost Institute, we have new information about the prices that insurance companies actually pay medical providers for services that we really didn't have before. You know, we have a lot of discussion uh, about the list prices that hospitals and doctors would like to be paid, what happens when you get services that are out of network or when you're uninsured. And those can often be 
unpredictable and astronomical. Uh, and, you know, there's much consternation about those prices. But most people have some kind of insurance and most people go to in-network providers. And so this is kind of a look under the hood of like what insurance actually pays. And it turns out that those prices are just as unpredictable and just as bonkers uh, as I'm exaggerating somewhat. They're slightly less. Oh, I don't know. I think, slightly I think, less bonkers. But I think bonkers is still a pretty apt word. Uh, but there's just these huge ranges. And so I looked at this very common blood test called a comprehensive metabolic panel. This is something you would like get at an annual physical. Uh, you know, millions of people get these tests every year. Uh, you know, it really, it literally could cost $10 or it could cost $1,000. And, you know, if you don't have a deductible, maybe you don't see that except in your premiums. But if you do have a deductible and you have, you know, the unfortunate luck to go to the place where it costs $200 or $400, uh, you're going to feel that in your pocketbooks. And the other thing that I think is of interest is that the Trump administration is actually taking a look at this issue, at the fact that these prices are so rarely made public, uh, that, you know, doctors, hospitals, and insurance companies negotiate behind closed doors and then keep those prices a secret. Uh, Our colleague uh, Stephanie Armour uh, broke the news that they're considering a regulation that would require those prices to become public. And I think it's a really uh, interesting idea. The industry is very much against it. And the economists that I've talked to are not really sure what the effects of that kind of transparency would be. It might not lower prices. Uh, It might, in fact, lead to collusion. We really don't know. It's a very interesting policy uh, proposal. So uh, I just think here's here's a little bit of transparency and you can sort of see under the hood of how weird it is. uh, But it's possible we're going to get much bigger and broader transparency in the future. Full employment for health reporters. Erin. So I have a really interesting story from Margot's colleague at The New York Times, Sheila Kaplan, uh, who I will say is a stat alum. Uh, And it's called In Washington, Jewel Vows to Curb Youth Vaping. It's lobbying in states runs counter to that pledge. It's really interesting for a couple of reasons. I think in part because here in Washington, um, Juul, which makes e-cigarettes, has really been trying to sort of brand itself as a do-gooder, looking out for sort of to try to correct some of the problems we've seen in the e-cigarette industry, to try to sort of make it clear that they aren't trying to market only to teens, that sort of thing. Um, and what Sheila did is went to South Carolina and I think looked at a few other states. And this company is paying for an army of lobbyists to fight legislation that would do exactly that at the state level. Um, so it's sort of duplicitous and it's a very interesting look at uh, how much money and time they're willing to invest in pushing back at the state level. And suggesting how much money they're probably making. Um, All right. My story is from Vice News, and it's called There's No Proof Abortion Reversals Are Real. This Study Could End the Debate by Carter Sherman. So now we have four states with laws on the books requiring that women having medication abortions be told that if they change their mind after taking the first of two pills, they can reverse the process. Uh, Another several states are looking at similar laws, but not only is there no solid evidence that that is true, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says such claims are, quote, not based in science and do not meet clinical standards. Enter a researcher at the University of California, Davis, who's going to actually find out using a randomized double-blind study. Um, I wasn't sure you could do this ethically, but he's going to study women who had already decided to have surgical abortions and see if high doses of progesterone will actually reverse the effects of the abortion pill, the first pill that that women take, mifepristone, we will know in about a year. I will be keeping watch. So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at PW underscore Cunningham. At Sanger Katz. 
at E.E. Marchand. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>